Apostles' Creed. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Creed, uh, the words are actually on the back of the bulletin, and this whole series has been based on it. It's called Back to the Basics, and there my voice is suddenly has volume. That's fantastic. Uh, we're in the mid middle of a series on the Apostles' Creed, and here are some of the uh, words that we've gone over so far. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Like Ben said, last week we talked about Christ's descent to the dead, and today we're talking about how Christ, on the third day, rose again from the dead. Um, Nicholas Kristof is a columnist for the New York Times, and on April 20th, he interviewed Serene Jones, who is the president of Union Theological Seminary. And in the very first question of the interview, Kristof asks Jones this question. Do you think of Easter, Easter Sunday, as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? I have problems with that. The seminary president said the following. When you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. And those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. The empty tomb is a symbol that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. So on both sides of this interview, in the New York Times, there is a lot of skepticism about a literal resurrection. Nicholas Kristof, the interviewer, is not a Christian, so he just doesn't believe it's possible at all. And Serene Jones is a seminary president training ministers who says that resurrection is a symbol. Now, I know a lot of us in this room, maybe at some point in our lives, have struggled with the idea of a resurrection, whether it was intellectual or just existential. I remember going to college and someone putting all four of the Gospels' accounts of the resurrection side by side by side and pointing out the distinctions between each, and I wondered why no one in church had brought this up. But for others of us, it's not intellectual so much as existential. It's death itself. Death just seems so final, so irreversible, so incapable of being overcome. We know that doctors, yes, have brought people back to life by resuscitation. This is not working at all. Only when I turn at an angle. This is good to know at the beginning of the sermon and not the end. Uh, fortunately, I have the spiritual gift of volume, so I hope you caught some of that. Um, but we're going to go with this from here on out. Okay, quick summary for those of you who didn't hear in the back. Some people think the resurrection is a symbol. Some people struggle with it because of intellectual difficulties. And some people struggle with it because death itself just seems like it can't be overcome. But here's the thing. Here's what's true about Christianity. The backbone of Christianity is not resuscitation. It's not bringing people back to life just to die again. The backbone of Christianity is resurrection. Christians have claimed for 2,000 years that Jesus rose from the dead never, ever, ever to die again. 
And the stakes of that are so important because this same man, this man named Jesus, is reported to have said that the resurrection will happen to everyone. He says in John's gospel, all those who are in their graves will hear my voice and will come out of them. Some will rise to new life and some will rise to meet their sentence. In other words, the very man that we claim rose from the dead is the one that says that's going to happen to all of us. So last week we talked about how the one fact we can all know is that we're all going to die, but Jesus says the other fact that you can know is that you will live again. And the only question is, what kind of life will that be? Jesus says some will rise to new life and some will rise to meet their sentence. Now, we just saw and heard one account of Jesus' resurrection. That's actually in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when we read those all side by side, it can be very jarring. Some of us worry that they don't all fit together perfectly, but the good news is you don't need to worry. We shouldn't bring our own expectations of how we think those authors should have written the stories. They set out to do exactly what the Spirit guided them to do, which is create works of art and works of truth. If any one of us saw four different movies about Abraham Lincoln, we would not expect them to be shot-for-shot identical. That doesn't mean any of the movies is wrong. That doesn't mean Lincoln never existed. It just means that, like, the, like movie directors, the gospel authors set out to write beautiful works of art as well as works of truth. So I want to walk this story, walk through this story, and I want all of us to imagine this scene as I read it out loud and look for clues that these authors are trying to say that this resurrection really happened. This starts in Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, this angel, that they shook and became like dead men. I love that these big, buff Roman guards collapse, and all of the women are like, what's the message? What, tell, tell, us what, tell us what we need to know. And the angel says this, here's the message, don't be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, and you can see an empty tomb. He was crucified, but he is not here. He is risen, just as he said he would. So come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Now I think we already have, in those verses alone, two clues that this story is telling the truth. First of all, women in that culture, in this time and in this place, 2,000 years ago, were not considered reliable witnesses. Do I think that's sexist? Absolutely. But that's what people thought. They're not reliable witnesses. But 
all four of the male gospels are adamant about including that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. No one, no one would include that detail because it would totally discredit to male audiences. Male audiences would laugh and say, you can't, you can't trust what women say. Even some of the Jewish disciples later say, oh, these, these women are coming in here with, with fantasies. It's just not true. But all four of the male gospel authors are saying, this is how it actually happened. Even if it discredits it to some people, this is what really took place. The second clue comes from the other gospels, but fits in with this account so well. Jesus was crucified on Friday, and because the Sabbath was on Saturday, all the Jewish disciples had to rest. So they come back to the tomb on Sunday to anoint Jesus's body. The other gospels say that they brought spices. This is so important. All the accounts agree on this. They were expecting him to be dead. He told them that he was going to rise, but they were expecting him to still be in the tomb. And this actually fit with the broader Jewish theology of the time. Many Jewish teachers believed that there would be a general resurrection of all people in the future, but they had no concept whatsoever of one individual rising from the dead in this way. N.T. Wright put, puts it this way. I love it. He says, if your favorite Messiah got himself killed, then you either went home or found yourself a new one. The idea of saying that God raised Jesus from the dead wouldn't have even entered the minds of the disciples. The gospel authors are, are sharing how little they expected the resurrection because they're trying to tell you it really happened against all expectations. Now, at this point, modern readers will say, okay, it's fine that the gospel authors thought this, they were surprised, they expected him to be dead. But in reality, it was probably just a ghost. You know, it was just kind of an apparition of sorts. They didn't really see a man with, a, with a, some kind of body. But this absolutely goes against all four of the accounts. Because in the next verses, Jesus appears to them. He says, greetings. And the women, the first thing they do, they run over to him, and what do they do? They clasp his feet. I just, I, I love to imagine this moment. That is exactly where one of the nails went into Jesus' body to hang him on the cross. They fell down on the ground and grabbed his feet. They were not seeing an apparition or a ghost. They touch this man's body. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus appears to his disciples, he says, look at my hands and feet. It's, it's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. God raised Jesus from the dead with a new body, but he was a body. Now, I think a lot of other uh, modern audiences may think, okay, well, it wasn't a ghost, but they must have been hallucinating. We know this happens with, with a lot of people grieving. There's no reason to shame anybody over it. But when you're sad, when you've lost a loved one, sometimes you see them or feel their presence. So it, we don't have to shame the disciples for this, but they were probably just grieving. They were hallucinating. 
The only problem with this explanation is that all you have to do is check the body in the tomb. Right? Just a few months later, if the disciples were still saying Jesus is raised from the dead, what did the Jewish authorities do? They roll back the stone and they say, his body is right there. He's not alive. You must be grieving. You must, I mean, they, they spent three years following this guy. It must be sad for you, but here he is. And the problem is the tomb is empty. It's not a hallucination. And most importantly, no one at the beginning ever said it was a hallucination. The big story, and that we even see recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, was theft. Maybe these disciples stole the body. In verse 11, we see that while the women were on their way, some of the guards, who had woken up from their, their little coma, went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. Now, I've got to admit, one of the biggest difficulties for me intellectually is this alternative explanation. Maybe it makes sense. The disciples couldn't really handle the loss of their Messiah, so they stole the body, they hid it somewhere, and they just circulated the story. No one could ever verify the stolen body, and it seems like a really tidy story until you start poking a few holes in it. Because in that time, tombs are designed to prevent theft. And grave robbing was a capital offense. If you got caught in someone else's grave, you would die. They would put you to death, no questions asked. Also, you have to imagine this. The disciples are supposedly stealing a body without discovery in Jerusalem during the Passover festival when the population swells to three times the normal population. They'd also have to commit this impossible mission while the Romans are on high alert and they've got soldiers in front of the tomb. And also, just for one more kicker, the guards are confessing their failure and not getting in trouble. This makes absolutely no sense. The Roman guards who failed on their posts were typically executed. So these guards say, hey, everybody, we failed. The disciples stole the body, but for some reason... We're not in trouble. A bribe makes a lot more sense than that. I mean, it's hilarious when you actually imagine this scene, okay? So there's a quickly assembled, immoral team of Jewish disciples. They steal a body at great risk to themselves. No wife or friend finds out. They apparently decide to steal the body the same weekend of his death instead of waiting just a few weeks later when there are no guards around. I mean, unless... You are Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible 7. This cannot be done. This makes absolutely no sense to describe what actually happened. The best, the best explanation is not some conspiracy or some theft or hallucination. The best explanation is that on the third day, Jesus rose again. When we say that 
believing and trusting in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is an act of faith, we're not saying we don't have good reasons. We have a lot of really good reasons to believe that he really rose from the dead. And if it's true, if this statement on this screen is true, then that means that Serene Jones and Nicholas Kristoff are both wrong. It's literal as literal can get. And it is not a symbol. If the body of the man Jesus who went around loving the poor and preaching the good news is still in a tomb, if he was wrongly crucified on a cross, every Sunday morning we spend worshiping him is a colossal waste of time. I don't know how that symbol can bring anything other than despair. A symbolic resurrection? I mean, that just reminds us that again, 2,000 years ago, evil triumphed. An innocent man was killed. The gears of worldly power continue on, unfazed whatsoever. But a literal resurrection? A flesh and blood resurrection? That means that all of history, all of history, pivots around that fact. There's a man who died and lives again and will never die again. And that man, the one man that we believe has actually already experienced that, says that that is going to happen to everyone in this room and everyone who's ever lived. In other words, it is a matter of time before all those who are in their graves rise again. We asked at the beginning, you no, know, what if that was true? What, we, can, we can acknowledge that all, you know, one day we're all going to die, but what if it was a fact that you lived again? What if you lived forever? There, there are two people in my life who I love dearly who really struggle with this idea. Um, even the idea of something like heaven going on forever is just terrifying to them. And I think it's because both of them have lost a loved one at a very young age. One, uh, one of my friends, his uh, sister uh, was born with a mental uh, handicap and died at a very young age, before she was even a teenager. And my wife, Allison, lost her cousin in a car accident while her other cousin was driving. And both of these loved ones of mine, just whenever I've talked to them about heaven, heaven is a very comforting idea to me, but for them it just seems like something good going on forever is impossible. I mean, how could it not be draining? How could it not be ultimately disappointing? How could it not be boring? I remember one of my professors saying, if heaven is an eternal worship service, I might consider going to the other place. I mean, we, we can't, I mean, really, in this life, we can't imagine a good and perfect thing going on forever because we're constantly facing the reality that good things come to an end. And I, I don't pretend to have the most satisfying answer. But what helped me the most in grappling with this is that in this life, we also have moments in which we just lose track of time. 
I don't know if this has happened to you. I think of wrestling my nephews and nieces and just never wanting to stop. <laughs> Them crawling all over me, pretending to be some superhero, defeating the villain. I think of Allison's grandpa telling stories of being a veterinarian and never wanting him to stop. I think of being with friends around a table and having no idea that we had just spent three hours together. I think of singing because he lives with all God's children every single week and thinking, I want to sing that chorus one more time. I remember wandering around in the, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, which has the empty tomb of Jesus right in its center. I think those moments in our life are a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what eternal life with God really can be. God is the one who can hold on to you for eternity and never ever, ever be disappointing. He's the infinite good that you can never exhaust. That's what eternal life could be like. And the one man who's been raised from the dead never to die again says that all of us will rise from our graves, will hear his voice and live again. What if that happened? What if you lived again? What kind of eternal life do you want? I want the eternal life with God. And I pray that for myself and for this church and everyone who seeks him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we celebrate that the resurrection is not a symbol. It's the beginning of a new history. We can live knowing that one day we'll die. And one day we'll live again. We pray for that eternal life with you. We pray that you give us that good gift. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.